The scripture reading today is 1 Samuel 1, 4 through 11, and 2, 1 through 10. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to, to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkina, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. We are in the middle of a series on prayer where we are um, searching the scriptures for examples of what the Bible teaches us about encountering God. What is encounter with God like? We're looking to the, the scriptures to teach us something about that. Um, I used to work in the restaurant before I worked as a worship director uh, here at Liberty Fairmount, and one of the conversations that people would have pretty regularly is, um, well, conversations about religious uh, faith and belief would come up. And one of the things that folks would be very quick to say is, I'm not a religious person, 
<clears throat> but I'm a spiritual person. Um, spirituality or being aware of your own spiritualness is something that's very fashionable in our culture. People may not necessarily go to church or attend a synagogue or read any holy books or anything like that, but they're very quick to acknowledge that they know that there's more to who they are than just flesh and bone, than just this stuff. There's something about being a human being that means having a spirit. Um, and I, that is consistent with scripture, isn't it? I mean, our, the Bible tells us that people are, are made in God's image and there's an appetite, there's a hunger in everyone to want to connect to God in a meaningful way. So uh, spiritualness, again, something that people say often in a very vague sense. And what's dangerous about it is that I think that that same sense can carry over into our lives as Christians. That is, it's possible and even very likely to be a person who professes faith in Jesus Christ you can be someone who says, I, I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I believe that he came to earth to live the life that I should have lived and died in my place, uh, that he was resurrected to new life to defeat sin and death and reconcile me to God. You can say all of that and simultaneously have the sense that connecting with God in any sort of real, consistent, meaningful way is a very abstract or nebulous, vague thing. I don't know about you, but I often feel that way. We have these very concrete things that we believe, but yet in the actual practice of connecting to God, we find ourselves kind of often um, at a loss for words. So in this sermon series, we're looking back over particular stories in Scripture that don't just give us models. That is, we have looked at a model. Uh, even this past Sunday, we looked at the Lord's Prayer, which is one of the best templates in the whole Bible for how to actually approach God. Jesus himself says that when you pray, this is what your words should be like. So it's important that we pay attention to the models of Scripture. <clears throat> But it's also important that we pay attention to the stories of real people who have encountered God. That is not just looking at kind of the rubric for this is what a prayer should be, but looking at the lives of people who have actually wrestled with God, who have encountered him in ways that actually have changed who they are. And that's what Hannah's story is. That's what we're looking at this morning. The same logic of, of the distinction between methods and practice is probably true for most of you, I would say, um, if you're anything like me, as re regarding uh, recipe books, Right. Um, I love reading recipe books. I, I love food. Um, and so leisurely reading for me is kind of just paging through recipe books that I, I may never actually use, but it's just cool to learn their technique. And I would be willing to guess that a bunch of you probably have recipe books on your shelves that you never use, right? They just sit there, they collect dust, and they have great pictures in them of things that you wish you could magically make appear, but you don't. But why don't you? Well, the reason is, is that most textbooks, or pardon me, most cookbooks aren't very helpful because all they do is give you a method. That is, they tell you, here's the right ingredients, this much salt, this much flour, this much pepper, this much paprika, whatever it might be. And then they tell you how to do it, but they don't account for anything of the experience of the tens of failures of all the test cooks who went through the process of actually getting that recipe to where it's at. They don't tell you about what happens to butter if you leave it over, over a burner too long and it scalds and ruin, ruins the recipe. That's not accounted for the, in, in the uh, recipe itself. But if you do that, the recipe's kind of over. And you can only take so many frustrations like that before you're like, I think I'll just look at the pictures, thanks. So the same can happen to our spiritual lives, right? We need to read the Lord's Prayer. We need to read about David's encounter with God in 2 Samuel. We need to know what, how to approach God. But we also need to know the stories of people who have done it, who have, in the midst of the brokenness of their life, come before God and authentically related to him as real people. And that's what we're doing this morning. Um, I'd like to propose to us that as we look at Hannah's life, that um, Hannah will teach us that praise is the natural result of encountering God. Praise is the natural result of encountering God. 
And if we want to understand something about that teaching, we need to know more about four things. First of those is we need to understand the depth of Hannah's sorrow. Secondly, we need to know the deception of Hannah's idols. Third, we need to know what Hannah's encounter with God was like. And fourth, we need to come to understand something about true praise. The depth of Hannah's sorrow, the deception of Hannah's idols, Hannah's encounter with God, and true praise. So first, Hannah's sorrow. Um, It's too often the case that our sorrows really do stand in direct opposition to our encounters with God. Is that not true? Sorrows can be such immense, overwhelming things that it's hard to imagine being able to say, see or say anything praiseworthy about God in those moments. Well, what do we know about Hannah's pain in particular? Uh, The scripture says uh, that Hannah was the wife of Elkanah, who had another wife named Peninnah. Um, Let me take 30 seconds here and just say this. The first thing you ask when when you read that is, what does the Bible say about polygamy? The Bible condone this practice, and I just want to very quickly say, so we're not thinking about it the whole time, that the answer is no. And uh, the, briefest, the briefest justification for that is that every time that the scriptures present polygamy in the text, it's always shown to be an incredibly destructive thing, particularly for the women involved, obviously, but for everyone. It causes emotional upheaval, and it frays the social fabric. So I just wanted to say that as an aside before we get going. So, uh, Hannah is, wife to Elka- is the wife of Elkanah, whose other wife, Peninnah, has given Elkanah many, many children. And uh, in the scripture, we read that every year, year after year, it says, Elkanah and Hannah and Peninnah went up to the temple. That is, they were good Jews, and they were making sacrifices to atone for their sin and to please God. And every time that they went, Peninnah mocked Hannah. Peninnah scorned her. Peninnah pointed out to Hannah her her insufficiency, the fact that her whole life was the product of really not having received from God the the one thing that she wanted. Who are you? Who is your God? You think God really hears you when you pray. You can imagine some of the the exchanges that might have happened. Think of it, I mean, to personalize this, imagine if every time that you walked into worship here at Liberty, there was some jerk standing by the door who happened to know something about like a, a tremendous personal failure of yours. And every time you walked into worship, they were just waiting there around the corner to say, still not going so hot, huh? Yeah, that really sucks, doesn't it? Imagine how differently, imagine how scarring that would be after time if every time you walked into a church service, there was someone standing there to remind you of your failure or remind you of something that God had not delivered on in your life. You probably wouldn't come to church very much, would you? I I probably wouldn't, and I work here. Um... (laughs) So yeah, we can, we can put ourselves in Hannah's shoes that way and imagine her hardship. What is the particular pain, though? We, we know that she's infertile, right? Infertility is a problem that we understand uh, and we can know something about here in our modern world. But I'd like to propose that in the ancient world, infertility was a much more significant problem. It was not only a source of tremendous emotional and personal frustration of pain and heartache, but in the ancient world, if you were a, a woman who could not conceive children... Uh, there were many different risks involved. The first of which is you had no workers, right? This is, pre, this is the pre-industrial age. If you don't have any children, you don't have anyone to till the soil, you don't have anyone to cultivate the crops, you don't have anyone to build houses, you don't have anyone to fortify the city walls. No children is not just, a, a, not just an emotional, personal problem. It's an evidence of the fact that there is an impending economic crisis happening. Also, if infertility is a problem on a really broad societal level... You don't have an army. The people who are busy making more babies than you have many more soldiers than you. And it's only a matter of time before the people on the outskirts of your city amass a larger army and come and invade and destroy you. 
And then you, you could also say that probably the third and maybe most significant uh, threat that infertility brought into Hannah's life is the fact that um, she had no one to look after her later in life. That is, Hannah was getting older, year after year going before God, making her petition known, please give me a child. And not, and not having any children meant that there would be no one there when the natural breakdown of her body happened, when she wasn't able to work. That would be the end of her life. There would be no continuation of her legacy. So that's, that tells us something about um, the layers of this sorrow. Hannah is quite literally staring down the barrel of the gun. She's not just wrestling with an emotional hardship. She's looking at the reality of the fact that everything about her life and what she values is coming to death. So there's economic and social variables, uh, but it's also important to understand that there's another layer going on here, and that's the cultural idolatry at work. Second point, the deception of Hannah's idols. Why was it that Hannah's grief was so debilitating to her? Verse 10 says that she was caught up in deep anguish, that she was weeping bitterly. These are incredibly dramatic words about spiritual posture before God. Let's think about the dynamics of of Hannah's heart for just one second. Um, Try to envision something of of what she was feeling. Hannah had placed all of her self-worth and her identity in the category of being a mother. Uh, She lived in a cultural moment that said women are people who, women who matter are women that can, can reproduce and women who don't matter are women who don't reproduce. And it was as simple as that. Hannah had not only uh, been told by her culture that that was what she should think, but that was also something that she adopted personally. What's interesting is if you try to think of the modern equivalent of, of that idolatry, in our present age, it's, kind of the, it's exactly the opposite, actually. Our culture tells women today that be hot, be sexy, be beautiful. You're nothing if you're not physically attractive. It reduces to that, essentially. So interestingly, even though the, the cultural idols specifically are opposite, one is be a great mom, the other is be beautiful, both of those idol systems are, are doing what idols do, and that is they're, they're putting themselves in the place in the human heart that only God should occupy. And when that happens, really tragic things happen. The equivalent, also, just to not leave men out of the equation here, I think that uh, if you had to summarize what the the larger cultural message towards men today is, is be powerful, be wealthy, be successful. You are the product of your achievements. Your net worth is your self-worth, and that's it. Again, an idol that takes the place of God in our lives, and it yields destruction. Again, a, a way to summarize that in a phrase that I think is helpful Uh, is that anything else that acts as a Lord in your life that isn't the one true living God will enslave you and, and, and kill you eventually. Jesus is the only Lord who will die for you. All other lords require that you die for them. So, the idolatry of Hannah's heart. Now, I've just talked about this in very extreme categories, right? Like life and death, what you love can ultimately lead to your own personal destruction or to your own flourishing. And you might just be saying, like, really? Like, isn't that language a bit strong? Yeah, I, w- I want to be successful. I, I want to look good. You know, I, I, are those really such bad things? Like, aren't those things that most people want? What's the big deal? So what? And to that, I would just say, so everything. Um, some of you may be familiar with David Foster Wallace. He was a, a, a writer who uh, wrote in the past decade. Um, he gave a, commenci- a commencement speech at a college in Ohio in 2005 um, that has circulated a lot around the Internet. You can find it if you're interested in it interested in reading it. Um, And he gives some really interesting advice to a slew of folks that are about to go out into the real world for the first time. 
He warns them about the dangers of finding your identity in things that really can't satisfy you. This is, these are his words. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice is, is pardon me, the only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel that you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. In the wake of the uh, financial collapse of 2008, there were a lot of uh, stories that hit the news media about the suicides of very successful, influential, powerful um, corporate figures. Uh, Let me just point your attention to a couple of them. Again, evidence of what it means to orient your life around a sense of identity that can't give you what you want from it. So um, the chief chief acting financial officer for Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families and who lost $1.4 billion in uh, the Ponzi scheme, uh, slid his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office. When a Bear Stearns executive learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, which had bought his collapsed firm, he took a drug overdose and leapt from the 29th floor of his office building. It really is tragic. Here's the bottom line. If we stake our our identities on things that don't last, neither will we. Back to Hannah. Here she is at her spiritual and emotional bottom, right? She's at the moment where the the financial collapse of her life, quote-unquote, has happened. She's reached a point where the things that she was trusting in have failed her. She could have given in to despair, but at this point she makes a decision. Look with me at verse 9. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. She stood up. This seems like a, a passing detail. I, I confess as I was kind of mulling over the passage over the course of the last couple of weeks, I, I couldn't really figure out why this particular detail was included in the text. But I think this is what's important to notice about it. That her standing up represents a moment of change. It represents her asserting her will to not settle for her griefs. What did we do this morning when we started worshiping? Um, Stephanie stood up here and she asked you to stand and sing, right? Katie, as we began our worship, she asked you to stand and sing. Why do we do that? Because posture matters. We sing and we pray and we talk to God totally differently when we're standing, when we're making an effort by lifting our bodies up off the ground. That makes a difference compared to how you relate to God when you're sitting down. And that's what this means for Hannah. Hannah's standing up signifies her movement towards God. Her praise begins, actually, in this moment. And where does she go shortly thereafter? She goes back to the temple. This is a a great lesson here. What had the temple, remember what we said earlier about what she'd experienced at the temple? It was a, a place of mockery, of bitterness, of scorn and shame for her. She goes back to the temple. Why does she go there? Because she knows that's where God is. This is, this is the testimony of an incredibly faithful life because in the midst of all of her heartache, in the midst of what had come to be a tremendous, overwhelming sea of shame for her, 
she goes back to the place where God is, despite what it had come to symbolize, despite the fact that you can imagine as she was walking in the door to the church, she's, she's imagining Peninnah there again, mocking her, scorning her, you barren woman, what are you worth? What do you have to contribute? Another unanswered prayer. You can imagine what it was like. This is desperation. Desperation is... Um, can't we just admit that that's one of those spiritual practices that no one really wants to ever have thrust into their life, right? No one likes to feel desperate. No one likes to feel put in a situation where we're really at our wit's end. But this is where Hannah is. <clears throat> we like the resurrection of Sunday morning, but we don't like the Good Friday of sorrow and death. And Hannah has to walk through that sorrow and death to get to the place of praise. But look at how she prays. She's not just stuffing her emotions. She's not just, some of us, when we get really upset, you may be one of these people, you, you don't let anything out. That is, you, you have a sea of pain and hurt inside you, but you, you keep it down because you're afraid of what it might look like to communicate that to other people or even to really feel it deeply yourself. That's one response. There's other people who are very emotionally expressive when they hurt. That is, you feel, that, you feel an urge to just say, oh, everyone needs to know about this. I don't know, maybe you take to Facebook or a Twitter stream or something, or you just, you just, you're way too emotionally overexpressive with your friends. Both of those are imbalances, and those aren't what Hannah's doing here. Again, look at the text, what it tells us about her grief. She's taking the deepest emotions of her heart, and she's going into God's presence, directing her emotions towards God. She's not just, <clears throat> excuse me, she's not just stuffing them. She's not just vacantly expressing them. She's taking her hurt, going into God's presence, and directing her heart towards God as she remembers his faithfulness, as she remembers the fact that God is still who he says he is, despite the outcome of her life at that moment. Point three, Hannah comes to a point of realizing not only that the desires of her heart have betrayed her to this, but that even if she were to get the desires of her heart, <clears throat> that they wouldn't be enough. Hannah realizes that the problem of her life is not the fact that she has not been able to conceive children, it is a problem, but it's not the most important problem. Her, rap, her grappling with God tells her that she doesn't just need her, her prayers to be answered. She, just, she doesn't need her desires to be satisfied. But rather, she needs new desires and new joys. Because what's the reality of every Samuel, right? Every Samuel dies. That is, even if God were to give Samuel to Hannah, and he does, the reality of Hannah's life is that she's only going to be a mother for so long. There's nothing about life that isn't shrouded in death ultimately. And for her, Hannah's realization is the fact that only God is a force that can allow her to transcend the force of death. So, Hannah's, verse 10, she's weeping in bitter anguish, crying out to God. And then in verse 11, she makes a vow. <clears throat> and again, this is evidence of the, the change in her heart. Because what does she do? She promises to God that if God gives her a son, she will give the son back to God. That's an amazing thing to say. You might be thinking, well, how do we know that she's not just trying to manipulate God? How, we know, how do we know she's not just trying to do some like bait and switch? God, you give me what, you, what I want and I'll, I'll give you what you want and we'll call it a deal. Well, we know that's not happening because all of chapter two, that is her song of praise. That is, if it were just about exchange, she would have pieced out. But she stays and offers this exultant hymn of praise to God, the evidence of a changed heart. <clears throat> Think of what Hannah was saying to God when she made that promise. She said, Lord, I'll give you what you've given me. Samuel, remember the heartache of the infertility that we talked about, the, the threat economically, socially, militarily that it was to not have children? Hannah is saying to God, Lord, I, this is, 
Samuel is my ticket out of this suffering. If you give me Samuel, I know that I'll be able to live a life in relative comfort, that I'll have someone to provide for me, but none of those things are as important to me as, as I know they are to you. And so I give you back, I give you back the son you've given me. So this is what the Lord through Hannah, I think, is teaching us this morning, that even the good desires of your heart, when they become ultimate hopes, they can't give you what you really want from them. What we really need is not just a relief from our sorrows. We don't just need the fulfillment of our desires even. We need new hopes and we need new desires. Hannah's heart has been ignited by the power of uh, a spiritual force in God that is greater than death itself. Hannah's able to say, yes, Samuel may die. You, you may give me a Samuel or you may not give me a Samuel, but death threatens my security in loving those things. And so I put my security in loving you, Lord, instead of those things. So Hannah's heart is ignited by a spiritual power, and this power is the source of her praise. Lastly, Hannah has encountered the God of, of great reversals. Because of God's intervention, the strength that used to threaten her has been disarmed. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. It reads, The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. The full are hungry, and the hungry are full. The childless have children. The dead are made alive. The poor are made rich. The humble are exalted. The needy are lifted up from the ash heap. God is a God of great reversals. If we look at the form of Hannah's prayer, we see an amazing agreement between the fact that she recognizes God's character, who he is, she also is, is praising God for his action and then simultaneously putting her hope in what he promises. She teaches us that all true encounters with God, regardless of, of how they feel in the moment, will ultimately lead to praise. This is a profound truth. Even this morning, if your life feels stuck in what is a perpetual cycle of disappointment, in real grief that doesn't seem to go away, the hope, of Hannah, the hope that Hannah teaches us about here and the hope that's made real to us because of Christ is that all prayer eventually turns into praise. In his book, um, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene, Eugene Peterson says this. He says, All true prayer pursued far enough will become praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry and fearful the experience it traverses, will become praise. It does not always get there quickly, it does not always get there easily. In fact, the trip can take a lifetime, but don't rush it. Don't try to push it. It may take years. It may take decades before certain prayers arrive at hallelujah. But prayer is always reaching toward praise. And if pursued far enough, it will arrive there. So how is God's power applied to you and me today? Was, was Hannah's story just a one-off, sentimental trifle about God's intervention in the life of an ancient Israelite woman? Is it just inspiration? Or is it evidence of a paradigm of Christian life that's available to you and, to you and me? I would say it's the latter. This isn't just a one-off incident of God's provision. It's telling us something about what it means to really encounter God. It's not, just a, it's not just a template. It's an actual story of a real person bringing their sorrow before God. And we can find ourselves in that story. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 8. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Jesus Christ, in the greatest act of love in the history of the universe, was cast outside the city, cast into the ash heap, and crucified and died with a criminal's death. And, G and God raised Jesus from that ash heap because Jesus endured the threat of death on our behalf for you and me. 
so that we too can be raised with him. We can receive his provision and experience his reversal in our own lives. Friends, you and I, we are the needy people. We're the lowly and the poor that this passage is talking about. We are the people who are the experiencers of God's reversals. And because Jesus destroyed the ultimate threat of death at the cross, you and I can look to God in the face of sorrows that seem to overwhelm us and realize that our sorrows do not have the last word. They don't. Say that to yourself. Say that in the face of your, of your troubles, that you may threaten me. You may, these waves of sorrow may feel like they're rolling over me. It may not feel like I'll be able to keep my neck above this water that much longer. But these sorrows, these griefs, these do not have the final word. Jesus does because he's destroyed the threat of these things ultimately. Or even, just much more practically even, when you're having a bad day, right? It, these kinds of griefs are real and substantial. And, and no doubt I, many of you in this room are or have wrestled with tremendous, tremendous hurts. But it's much more often the case that you're just not having a good day, isn't it? That there's, just, there's so many ordinary frustrations in life that cause you just to think, man, where, where is God in just the most basic things? Where's God in the most ordinary frustrations of going through life? And it's on those days that you have to look at this passage that Hannah's talking about think, and think of the reversals. Think about what God promises he will one day do to overturn the, the dynamic of frustration and suffering that we all live in. That's, tre- that's tremendous hope. Think about the fact that there is an unstoppable source of light and love and beauty. There's a, a new creation that's filled with friendship and love and and life and delicious food and wine forever. And that's coming like a torpedo aimed at your life. There's nothing that can stop that. That's a, treme- that's a tremendous source of hope. Think about that. Think about that in the midst of the ordinary frustrations of Monday through Friday until your heart latches onto it, until the frustrations of difficult people and difficult bosses and long commutes and everything else that makes life life, until those things just don't bother you as much, until you're able to secure your heart in a more lasting hope. That's what Hannah's teaching us. And lastly, I would just say this. Don't underestimate what God can do, what God can accomplish through your sorrows. Don't waste them. Don't waste your sorrows. It's so common because we don't really have as much of a robust shared language of lament in our current moment as we used to, um, that I think that we, we try to, we invest a lot of effort trying to make our sorrows feel like they're not real. But they are, aren't they? They are. And God knows that they are. And God's not, God doesn't allow those things in our life because he's just wanting us to grin and bear it. But because he really does want our hearts to be transformed by the reality of what he's done. He wants us to see that, the point, that we're not supposed to try to, to get around our sorrows, but rather to push through them, to push through the death that they feel like and find that he is God in the sorrow and that he's God beyond the sorrow, that he's the God of resurrection. He's the God who brings new life. He's the God who reverses circumstances that seem insurmountable. Don't waste your sorrows. Don't underestimate how you will change or how God will bring about his purposes in the world through you. Because God is always using, he's always using, I mean, think of who Hannah is. God's always using the busted up, broken, downcast, cast out, humble, weak, foolish, stupid people to accomplish the work of doing the most incredible things. That's just how God works. God doesn't, God isn't impressed by human wit and charm and strength and power. They're so small in comparison to who he is. God is in the business of using the people who feel like they have nothing to offer. 
who are at their wit's end to do the work of, of building his kingdom. Think of it. Do you realize that because of Hannah's obedience, that God used her to provide the first priest of Israel, Samuel, who would anoint the first king of Israel, who would bring in the reign of King David, who would be one of the first foreshadowings of the true Messiah that would come? Because of, of Hannah this, and, and her relatively, in the scope of the world, not that significant sorrow, hugely significant to her, but in the scope of the world's problems, this is just one little sorrow. But because of what Hannah did with it, God used her sorrow to bring about the greatest redemption in the history of the human race. That's amazing, isn't it? Hannah didn't know that. Hannah wouldn't have known that if you, if you, if you had told that to her. I mean, Hannah didn't even know that Jesus existed, right? And yet she was able to have this incredible faith in Yahweh, in the God of the Israelites, to be, to be a hope and a provision to her. How much more should you and I, on this side of having experienced and known about the love and the grace of Jesus, have, be able to have faith in the midst of our sorrows? And I guess I would leave you with just this, this question. Do you believe that God's redemption will be greater because of your suffering? Do you believe that the glory that's coming will be greater because of the fact that you're in the midst of the suffering and trials that you have right now? Do you believe that? If that's true, that would really mean that what God says about the destruction of evil is true, isn't it? If the the glory would be made greater because of the fact that your sorrows have been included in it, that's an amazing thought. Think on that. Find hope there. Friends, Jesus is the true and greater Hannah who was scorned and mocked, who wept before God and cried for deliverance from his agony, but was denied that deliverance so that you and I, in the face of our disappointments, can sing praise to God like Hannah did. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us through Hannah that you're a God who uses weak and feeble people to accomplish great things. Give us courageous faith like Hannah to come to you in our griefs. And fill us with the hope of Christ that gives strength to face the sorrows of life and still praise you, Lord, because we know that the ultimate sorrow, that death itself, has been defeated. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.